The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. I'm sure at this stage many of you would have heard uh, the reports on the Sean Moncrief show uh, during the week. Sean was in Ukraine last week. He spent the week in uh, Kiev uh, to mark the anniversary of the outbreak of the war. That anniversary is uh, today, to be precise. And if you've missed any of the coverage, it has been really, really brilliant and really, really insightful as well and some incredible stories uh, Sean heard while he was there. You can listen back to a lot of it. Uh, They're up as podcasts. You'll find them in the News Talk app if you just uh, look for the Sean Moncrief show. But while he was there, he got into discussions uh, about whether Vladimir Putin or anybody else on the Russian side might ultimately be tried for war crimes. He met specifically in this front with Roman Koval, who's head of communications and a field researcher with a group called Truth Hounds. So they're a private war crime investigators and they've been gathering evidence since not just since the start of the war last year but rather all the way back to 2014 and the invasion of Crimea. So when Sean caught up with Roman he started by asking about the kinds of war crimes they've been investigating and if for instance there's been evidence of torture. Well um, I'll better tell you about uh, our two recent the most recent investigations uh, the first one is called uh, a calibrated crime, and it's about the attack on the Mikolaev, uh, on the building of Mikolaev uh, regional state administration. Uh, it happened in March 2022. Uh, well, we investigated this missile strike, and we identified that the missile was launched from uh, from Admiral Essen. It's a Russia, Russian warship, and we identified the crew of this ship and the captain of this ship. Well, we found uh, witnesses who saw missile flying to Mikolaev that day from the uh, Black Sea. That's how we identified trajectory of the missile. Uh, and also we have experts in international humanitarian law whose work is to to write such qualifications for uh, for official investigators to make a case strong enough not to allow it to, to be cracked down in court, for example. Also, we investigated another attack which happened in March 2022. It happened in Chernihiv. This investigation called uh, Who's Next in the Deadline because it's about shelling people queuing for bread in Chernihiv. And 14 people, 15 actually people, people died there in the line. So we documented this attack, we investigated, we discovered some circumstances, specific circumstances, and we identified also actually from where uh, shells came from and identified which particular unit were standing, standing at the area. And we've also used uh, satellite pictures and we scanned the possible area where artillery could could stand that day and we discovered some firing points, yeah. We also were able to identify the commander and we can say that he's alleged war criminal. Now, you did mention torture. There have there been many cases of torture that you've come across? Yeah, quite a lot. And in uh, every region in uh, Kyiv region, Kherson region. So, for example, our last field mission was to Kherson region, to the occupied areas of Kherson region, not to the city itself. 
and we identified a huge torture chamber in uh, Veliko Alexandrivka. It's a it's a small it's a small town in Kherson region, and 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 the basement of a building uh, there were torture chamber uh, close to school number one, where Russian troops were located, and actually in this in this torture chamber. People were tortured with electricity. The Russian soldiers just beat them. And we identified more than 20 victims of such actions. And some of them are... Nobody knows where they are right now. So they probably were killed and their bodies uh, still cannot be found. And or for example they were deported to some occupied areas or to Russia itself. Would that torture have been carried out on Ukrainian troops or just civilians? There were only civilians in this place. And in investigating that, why were they torturing civilians, do you know? Uh it's how they act during during wartime and how they operate in during war. They want civilians to be scared in the occupied territories sometimes they're looking for some information for example they suspecting that someone is informator of ukrainian army and things like that and actually i heard so many reasons why they tortured somebody from from victims i mean and they were claiming russian soldiers russian troops uh, were claiming different things and sometimes the reasons are just ridiculous for example they were drunk or sometimes they did it just for fun just to just to scare population in a village for example uh, when you read about these horrendous cases about people being tortured about people being raped you know when you go home at night is it hard to sleep is it is it difficult to cope with this every day yeah sure it affects everybody uh, in this house but we're doing it for for many years and we're trying to switch our emotions off when we're doing what we're doing because as I said it's important for us not just to tell stories also to identify to, to collect evidences of war crimes so to do this to, to keep we keeping this purpose in our heads all the time so and you cannot allow yourself a lot of emotions during this if, if you want to reach this process, because I mentioned about the proper way of collecting evidences. This proper way means that you must do your job, not letting yourself uh, too, much, too many emotions. Yes, that was Sean Moncrief in conversation uh, with Roman Koval uh, in Ukraine last week. As I said, Sean was there. He was there in Kiev for the entire week uh, and all of the interviews that he gathered uh, are available up on the News Talk app. You should listen back to them. But back to the the the, the issue discussed, uh, the question of war crimes. Interesting today, Gordon Brown, former UK Prime Minister, calling for Vladimir Putin to be tried at what he describes as a Nuremberg-style tribunal for war crimes. Yvonne McDermott-Reese is with me. She's a professor in law at the Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law at Swansea University and she specialises in international criminal law. Yvonne, you're welcome to the show and thanks Hi, for taking Karen. the time to speak to us. So, I mean, where, where does one even start when it comes to the gathering of evidence and the prosecution of war crimes? 
Yeah, so um, when investigators are gathering evidence, really they're looking for evidence of two uh, things. One is what crimes have been committed, and the second is what we call linkage evidence, um, you know, ensuring that this person in the dock is the person who who bears responsibility for those crimes. Um, but Kieran, look, you know, the situation in Ukraine is close to becoming probably the most well-documented war in human history. Not only do we have these, as you've just heard, investigators like your your last interviewee on the ground gathering witness statements, forensic evidence, ballistics evidence, but we also have ordinary citizens with mobile phones in their pockets picking them up and recording evidence of, of atrocities. Um, and add to that the widespread availability of satellite imagery now. We really have just such a huge body of evidence that investigations can draw on. Um, Here in Swansea University, we do a lot of work on this. It's generally called open source information. Mm. Um, It's basically a fancy term for stuff on the internet uh, that anyone can access. But making sure that the people who are gathering and preserving that evidence that is shared usually by ordinary people, usually posted to social media, um, that they're doing that work in a way that ensures ultimately its admissibility in court. So we've been working really closely with GLAN, uh, the Global Legal Action Network. It's a group of Irish lawyers um, and Bellingcat, the investigative journalism organisation, to, to come up with a methodology mm. basically to make sure this work is done in a way that um, ensures it meets legal yeah. admissibility requirements. You, you said admissibility in court. When you say court, yeah. what, what court are you talking about? I mentioned Gordon Brown talking yeah. about kind of a Nuremberg-style tribunal. People will always talk about the ICC and the Hague. There's obviously domestic yeah. courts as well that would have obvious exactly. jurisdiction. So, I mean, when, when, you, when you're doing this work, uh, what, what court is in your mind? Yeah, well, we're just basically ensuring that uh, it follows best practices because justice in the context of Ukraine is likely to be a really multifaceted uh, endeavour. You know, we've already seen the Office of the Prosecutor General in Ukraine uh, conducting investigations and prosecutions. Um, We also have, as you say, uh, the International Criminal Court in The Hague. So the prosecutor there has launched an investigation. Their investigators are are on the ground collecting evidence. And as you mentioned, there's there's this increasing um, call for setting up some sort of like special tribunal for Ukraine. Um, the, The perceived benefit of having a new international body or an international Nuremberg style tribunal is that the International Criminal Court in The Hague would only have jurisdiction over genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. But what people like Gordon Brown are saying is that there's also a big crime here, which is the crime of aggression. And the International Criminal Court wouldn't have jurisdiction over that for for various technical reasons that we can go into. Um, So the idea is, oh, well, if we set up a new tribunal, then that can try the crime of aggression. But I mean, who knows? It does look like this this idea is gaining some momentum, so it may get established. But I can see that that wouldn't um, take the place of domestic prosecutions, particularly in Ukraine. And probably also we'd have separate uh, proceedings before the International Criminal Court for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, You know, people will talk about Vladimir Putin ultimately someday being put on trial. I'm not sure. Is there any historical precedent for for 
something that would be that notable. You know, we talk about Nuremberg, you know, obviously, you know, there was one individual above all others who wasn't there, who was long dead. And I'm struck as well, even with Nuremberg, most people listening to this, that their their only understanding of it might have been watching Judgment at Nuremberg, the 60s movie. Um, We did see war crimes in the Balkans and we did see fairly high level leaders um, uh, tried uh, in the wake of, of that war. So wh- while we've never seen anything maybe yeah. uh, on the scale of a Vladimir Putin on trial, it's not utterly without precedent? Absolutely not. No, we have had heads of state um, stand trial. So at, even at Nuremberg, uh, Karl Donitz, who took over after Hitler as the head of state, um, yeah. was one of the people who, who was tried in Nuremberg. We had, as you mentioned, Slobodan Milosevic and the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Charles Taylor, the former president of uh, Liberia, was tried by the Special Court of Sierra Leone and convicted. He's currently serving a sentence over here in the UK. Um, so, yeah, look, it's not it's not beyond the reams of possibility. Um uh, you know, I think I think in the particular context of Vladimir Putin, the big challenge is going to be uh, getting him into custody, getting him transferred to The Hague if an arrest warrant were issued against him. Um, and again, we have some precedent for this. So Omar al-Bashir, the former president of Sudan, was uh, an arrest warrant was issued against him by the International Criminal Court. Um, and the impact of such an arrest warrant being issued means that these people effectively can't travel to states that are party to the statute of the International Criminal Court. So if they wanted to travel to a conference in the UK or to Germany mm. for some talks or something, then the 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 state could transfer them over to The Hague to stand trial. So that has a limiting effect on heads of state. Um, in the case of Bashir, he still managed to to travel quite a bit and some states refused to transfer him. But I don't know, I think the the maybe the international feeling <laughs> against Putin and against Russia is kind of really quite different at the moment. You know, we saw this General Assembly resolution yesterday where 141 states um, voted in favour of this resolution calling on Russia to withdraw from Ukraine. So we we get a sense of what the international feeling on this is. Um, So it's quite a different situation. Yeah, listen, it's it's, it's 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 a fascinating area uh, to be working in, I'm sure. And it's been really interesting talking to you as well, Yvonne. Thanks a million for joining us. Thanks, Gary. Yvonne McDermott-Reese is a professor in law at the Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law at Swansea University. And she specialises in international criminal law.